Well, if we, we welcomed back the uh, missions team from North Carolina. Uh, Frank slipped out, but he's a fearless leader. Uh, I want to thank him for leading that, and then Jeremy Hasselman and Tom Gardner going, Lori Vanderlinden, the leaders, and uh, all the students I've talked to really enjoyed it. A great time. Uh, as Kirk said, we are in the book of James, and we uh, are now in chapter 3. So if you want to turn, sermon outline, it's your Bibles. First church was excited to be sending a mission team to help with the kids' programs and work projects being run by the Inner City Hope Organization. This is nothing to do with our mission trip, but a different church. As the van full of teens and adults pulled into the parking lot of the bunkhouse where they would be staying for the week, their youth pastor reminded them that they would be representing Jesus everywhere they went and in everything they said and did. All the team members nodded and smiled. And then they went to claim their bunks. Is there something I can do with this? As the team split up, the girls went to their bunk rooms and carefully chose which bunks they wanted with the more popular girls excluding the less popular ones, telling them not to make their beds near them. The guys went to their rooms and made jokes about who would be snoring and who would be less likely to get a girlfriend and who had the best basketball skills, as guys do. As the team came together for different activities in the camp, there were other groups there, and as what started as friendly banter with kids from the other youth group turned negative within a couple days, and one of the teams completely walked away and wouldn't interact with the other teams. The work projects were going well early in the week until the team had to wait for one morning, a couple hours for supplies. And then the complaining kicked in, uh, questioning the competence of the inner city hope leadership. Also early in the week, one of the adult chaperones of, of the team uh, came in and blasted the team in several areas, accusing them of being lazy and inconsiderate, failing to point out any of the good things that they had done. Later in the week, one of the homeowners that they were working with when the projects overheard some of the girls talking about how ghetto the neighborhood was and the house was, and she was very offended and let the team leader know that. On the second to last night, some of the team leaders, adults, slipped away to a restaurant to just have some time away. But the adults that weren't invited complained among themselves about the favoritism. By the end of the week, people's nerves were frayed, and even trying to settle on a restaurant on the drive home brought out complaining and conflict. When they got home, though, They all said what a wonderful time they had had and reported back to the church all the, how meaningful it was and how much good they had done. 
And very few of them ever went on a short-term missions team project again. This scenario is not a reflection of our Potomac Hills trips. It has nothing to do with this past week. I've only heard rave reports, none of the issues that I've described. But I have been on over 15 short-term missions trips in my life. And that was sort of a composite of things that I've seen and heard, even participated in. I greatly support short-term missions trips. Uh, that, was not, that was not a critique at all. It was a reminder that even when Christians attempt to do good with their time, their energy, and their resources, their tongues can undermine their efforts. St. Francis is often quoted as having said, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. I'm sure you've heard that. Let me change that a little bit. Your words preach your gospel, and it is necessary to use them well and wisely. Today's passage focuses on how we use our tongues and the great damage that we can do with them. Turn with me to James chapter 3, the first 12 verses. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our paths. Open and illuminate our hearts and minds that we may purely and better understand your word and apply it to our lives through Jesus our Lord. Amen. If you remember back to the end of chapter 1, 
Also a passage I got to preach on. James laid out three things that constituted what he called worthwhile religion. That we care for widows and orphans. That we keep unstained from the world and that we control our tongues. And so he doubles down here. Actually, he's going to reintroduce all of those themes throughout the book. So here is one of the other passages where he delves in even deeper to what that means, controlling the tongue. And he starts with a word to teachers of the Bible. Verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Why does James start with this warning to Bible teachers? I mean, wouldn't it have been easy for him to sort of cite or lash out at, you know, the men, crude, profane men in the city uh, who use their tongues for evil or politicians who speak, you know, pleasant lies with smiles? Well, yeah, it probably would have been a lot easier for him to start outside the church, but as with a lot of things, to paraphrase Jesus, it's good to take the logs out of our own eye before we remove the specks out of others, right? And to start here. I don't think that James is trying to limit the number of teachers, preachers in the church. I don't think that we've ever had too many pastors, too many teachers, uh, just numbers-wise. But he does want People who become pastors or elders or even Sunday school teachers, small group leaders for the wrong reasons, for the ego trip, for the expectations of others or for the prestige. And with all of the New Testament admonitions against false teachers, it was important that teachers be both godly in their speaking, in their theology, and in their lives. Now, there's always the balance, right? That if God has given you a gift, he expects you to use it. So if you have the gift of teaching, if you are called to lead, to teach, you should look for ways to exercise that gift. Otherwise, the parable of the talents might become a reality, right? Where God rebukes you for wasting your talent. But if you're not called to do it, don't do it for the wrong reason. And certainly don't do it poorly. If a young man wanted to go into pastoral ministry, my advice would be something like this. If you can teach the scriptures as true and the words of God that will change people's lives and you hold your own life to its standards then you should pursue ministry. But if you will not stand firm in your conviction that the Bible is perfect how it is, and you want to bend it, or twist it, or abandon it, pick and choose what you want, or make it fit the culture, please don't go into ministry. Find a different profession. I was reminded of the weight of biblical preaching just this week when I was scrolling through Facebook and someone had written a post about how meaningful last week's sermon was um, to them. And, and so they put, they even put a couple sentences from my sermon into a, 
like a cool graphic with a wheat field. Um, Emery, will you show them that? Just, just want you to see it. it, it. So I'm not doing this to brag because I was actually kind of like shocked and a little slightly panicked um, because I'm used to seeing like Tim Keller and John Piper and, and people like that. That's, that's who gets these cool graphics. Okay, that's enough. And I, I, just, I did, I sort of panicked inside and I thought, man, I need to be really careful what I say. It could become a meme. Like a quote box. That's like a weird feeling. At the very least, I was reminded that people really listen. And they may be, their lives may be changing as they hear God's word read and preached and applied. It's not like bluffing your way through a college essay where only the professor's going to read it, right? Biblical preaching needs to be solid and thought through. One of our elders has shared in a session meeting his view of preaching that if you don't put your all into your sermon and you show up unprepared, don't even bother. He'd rather you not even get up then bring something that's not ready, that you're not offering God your best. I, I appreciate that. It's a good reminder and challenged because we will be judged for what we say and how we approach feeding God's word to people. I know, this isn't just for pastors, right? Anyone who's teaching the word of God should be careful about this. Even when you're teaching children and teens, I think sometimes there's a thought that, well, it's it's just kids, right? I can wing it. But who needs better instruction in God's word than our children and our teens who are still learning and growing and sorting out what is true and what's not? I'm not saying you need to read Calvin's commentaries every time you got children's church. Spend days on it, but our kids are worth some effort, right? And ultimately, teachers are held to a standard because they use words. And it's in this whole context of words being judged. And and so James reminds us that a tiny part controls the whole. So the next section, verses 2 through halfway through 5. Let me read that again. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says... He is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. The USS Eisenhower ship weighs over 91,000 tons. It's nearly 1,100 feet in length, has a 280,000 horsepower engine, carries nearly 100 aircrafts on it, and over 6,000 people. All of that can be steered by a rudder that is one-tenth of one percent, the size of the whole thing. 
right? Control the small piece and you control the whole structure. Our tongues are our command centers. The steering piece, if you can control it. James says that you have the ability to control your whole body. Someone who is undisciplined and careless in how they speak to others is most likely undisciplined and careless in trying to curb their sin in other areas. And the inverse is true. Those who speak wisely and thoughtfully are most likely disciplined and godly in other areas of their lives. We recognize intrinsically that words have power. As part of my premarital counseling, I reflect what my premarital, Kath and my premarital counselor told us. Never mention the D word, divorce, right? In your marriage, even joking. Because then it becomes a reality. And suddenly, it's there. Words have powers. Your words signal to those around you your inner thoughts, your intentions. James is not saying it's impossible to use your tongue in a controlled way and yet be hiding secret sin. No, we, we see that all the time. That's very common. But it's a general tip-off to a person's character, the way that they talk is an insight into who they are. Sonship Ministries has a challenge that they call the tongue assignment. And so if you are going through the sonship materials, at some point you will encounter this. And they will tell you, you need to take uh, five things, uh, five positive and negatives, um, and I've, I've listed them in your outlines. For one week, try to keep, they call them five laws. All right, so the first is don't gossip, and the opposite, but do speak good about others. Next, don't complain, but do thank God for the things in your life. Third, don't make excuses or blame shift, but do admit when you're wrong or sin. Fourth, don't defend yourself, but rejoice, because you're worse than you think you are. And fit last, don't boast about anything except in your weaknesses. Man, if you can make it through one long conversation, much less a week, without violating one of those, you're a better person than I am. The point is to help you realize how poorly you keep any of these things, that you can't make much improvement until you realize how short you fall but also to encourage you, the huge encouragement in sonship and in the scriptures, that you are saved by grace and we run to Jesus when we realize how sinful we are because he is so great a savior. And it's in his power that we change. We've got to realize in our words the great potential for good and for evil. Verses 5b through 12, continuing this theme. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. 
This tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Sticks and stones may break our bones, but words do the real damage. Our tongues set things on fire. Do you ever feel like that? Have you ever totally messed up a situation or seen someone else just throw a match verbally, blow things up? Our tongues, James says, are full of deadly poison. You can devastate someone with just a sentence or two aimed at exposing their greatest weaknesses and humiliating them. Verse 8 says, No human being can tame the tongue. I've been watching a lot of tennis recently. Wimbledon. And I actually saw a documentary about John McEnroe and Bjorn Borg back in the... 80s when they played. And if you remember, if you know anything about tennis, John McEnroe was that blustery guy that was always screaming at the umps, right? He'd get so upset about a call. This was before the instant replay. And, or he'd be yelling at the crowd if they were making any noise. And it was pretty embarrassing, but people loved to watch. It was like this train wreck, just waiting to see if he'd go off. And the, the documentary sort of, you know, they were always pitted against each other, McEnroe and Borg. Fire and ice, because Borg was very quiet and reserved, almost gentlemanly, you know, and he would just play under control. But the documentary showed that he had those exact same issues when he was learning the game as a teenager. He'd be throwing his racket. At some point, he learned to channel that rage. And I think back to how I handle competition, <laughs> and to wish I could take back every negative comment, every outburst I've said in the heat of competition. This is a little embarrassing to admit, but I figure some repentance is good for a pastor, right? A couple weeks ago, we were with my extended family. You guys know what's coming. We are playing cards, uh, and I just got so frustrated and I yelled, every profanity in every language. I didn't actually say any of them. I just, that was my phrase. It just became this catchphrase that everyone said the rest of the week. Not my proudest moment. But actually a little more restrained than when I chucked my golf club the next day in frustration. But that wasn't in front of my kids, so not much better. All I can do is beg the Lord to change my heart and my mouth. 
and not embarrass my wife. (laughs) Verse 9, with it, our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And then verse 10 says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. How much does it destroy our witness when we are known as Christians who praise God on Sunday, but then run our mouths and say negative things and treat people poorly with our words throughout the week? I remember going to IHOP once and sitting with some guys from my church. And the waitress hadn't, she, I knew her um, from going in there, but she knew I was a pastor, but she hadn't seen me with these guys. And <laughs> she said, those guys go to your church. Really? <laughs> they had complained or said something rude and antagonized her somehow. And I just said, well, they need Jesus too, right? And they're figuring things out. But we can so easily invalidate our witness as believers. I mean, lies and profanity and things like that may turn people off and have them questioning um, our profession, but what really kills our witness is when we attack other people. People, James says, who are made in the image of God, which is all people, right? Believers and unbelievers. If we claim to love God, we have to love and speak lovingly to his image bearers. Patty Griffin is a singer-songwriter from Maine. She has a song called The Long Ride Home. It's a woman reflecting on her life and her marriage uh, as she's actually driving home from her husband's funeral. Here's the stanza that kills me. Forty years go by with someone laying in your bed. Forty years of things you wish you'd never said. How hard would it have been to say some kinder words instead? I don't want to have those kinds of regrets. Forty years down the road, 60 years down the road, looking back on life, looking back on marriage, at how I treated my family, how I treated other people. I want to speak words that give life, that build up, that don't tear down, even if I have to die to my own desires and my demands. Proverbs 12, 18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. I think I've heard that it's said that it takes 10 positive comments to overcome one negative one. That might be an underestimate. Can we be a people who embrace the challenge of loving each other and the people around us that we are countering the negative input in their lives? So that they are heap, we heap tens and hundreds of positive compliments and affirmations and encouragements. How hard is it to focus on the positive of people? 
and not harp on the things that you don't like or make fun of people's issues. Words truly have the power to hurt, to heal, the power of life and death. The last couple verses are basically restating Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus says, verses 33 through 35, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? He's speaking to the Pharisees here. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. David Platt, uh, pastor, tells the story of a man who had an apple tree in his backyard that only produced rotten apples. But he really he wanted to make a delicious apple pie. So he realized that he needed to stop getting rotten apples and get good, healthy ones. So he made a plan. He went to the grocery store. He bought a big bag of ripe, beautiful-looking apples. And then he got out his nail gun, and he nailed them to the tree. And his problem was solved, right? (laughs) Thank you. That's not at all a true story, but points to the ridiculous idea that you can just treat the outside of the tree and expect different results. But we all know that the problem is much deeper. The tree is rotten, right? The, the roots are dead. It's not going to give good fruit. And in the same way, a heart turned away from God will speak evil. A heart content and nourished by God's word. A tree by streams of living water, as Psalm 1 puts it, will speak good, will bear good fruit. In the beginning, God spoke all of creation into existence, right? With words, let there be, and there was. But the devil spoke lies and tempted Adam and Eve with half-truths and empty promises. And so the fall came. But Jesus came and restored and brought the words of eternal life. But you and I, we go back and forth between truth and lies, between using our tongues for good and for evil. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah found himself in the presence of the Lord. This, there's this amazing description of God on his throne in glory, surrounded by angels. Isaiah felt awe and fear. And he didn't say, I'm unworthy because my heart is sinful or because my mind or my will is corrupt, though he could have said any of those things. They're all true. What did he say? He said, woe is me, for I am lost. 
I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. And so God sends an angel to touch his mouth with burning coal, saying, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. This is a picture. It's just an illustration of God's healing, saving work in our lives. This isn't, this isn't the pattern. God doesn't do this every time he saves someone, literally, like he did with Isaiah. But how interesting that Isaiah said his lips were unclean, so God touched them as a way of purifying them. Isaiah goes on in that passage, and God asks, whom shall I send? He says, here I am. Send me. And God sent him, giving him instructions to speak to the people now that his lips were cleansed. He could speak God's words. And that same happens with us. When we recognize that we are sinful, and our own hearts are deceitful, and our mouths are unclean, out of control, dripping poison, starting fires, but then we turn to the one who lived his life. Jesus lived his life perfectly never sinning once in all he did or said. He never once shaded the truth or used his words to tear people down in a sinful way. And then he was wrongly convicted on the basis of lies and false accusations. We just sang about it. Led like a lamb to the slaughter, you spoke not a word, chose to be silent, though you did no wrong, nor was deceitfulness found in you. Yet by your wounds, our salvation has come. By our suffering, by your suffering, our freedom is won. Jesus died willingly in our place on the cross so that people of unclean lips and hearts could be saved. And then the saved Redeemed people begin to use our lips to praise him, to glorify him, to acknowledge his greatness. And then God sends us out to speak words of life, to bless those around us, to build others up in love and encouragement. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. That context is especially appropriate among believers in church, but we also are sent out. We are sent to point others to the great hope that they have in the love of God. Romans 10, 14 asks the question, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And verse 17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You may not be called to teach, but you are called to use your tongue, to use your words in the most constructive, God-honoring, kingdom-building way that you can. 
Amen. Let me give you a minute to lift up your own prayer to the Lord and how you can apply and change in response to his word, and then I'll close. Lord God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the reminder that our words are not often neutral, that we can do great good but great damage in what we say to one another. God, impress upon our hearts that as we speak, to be careful and to be wise and to be looking for things in others that we can build up and not looking for ways to tear others down. Yes, to challenge at times, to inspire, maybe helpfully critique, but Lord, may we have your heart to speak truth and life into people's lives. Lord, help us to refrain from criticizing, saying ugly things about people because it makes us feel better or smarter, whatever that impulse is. Help us to control our tongues. Help us to reflect you and not Satan who is the father of lies. But Lord, you speak all truth. And your perfect word to us was Jesus who is our great hope, our great example, but our great substitutionary atoning sacrifice that in him We are saved and we are changed and redeemed. And that our lives would reflect being saved and redeemed. And that our tongues would naturally call forth your praise and give dignity to our fellow image bearers. Lord, teach us how to do that. Though we are weak. And you may we are made strong. In Jesus' name. Amen.